This, this text always makes me laugh. I looked at Nicole when, when she read it. Because um, I can imagine Paul writing and, you know, they don't have backspace and they don't have whiteout and, you know, papyrus is expensive. And so he's like, oh, thank God I didn't baptize any of you people. Oh, shoot. Uh, no, Crispus, Gaius, right. So anyway, so that y'all don't have... Oh, wait, hold on. I forgot. I also baptized... Like, <laughs> Oh, oh, right. I forgot. Uh, I imagine him writing that with like a little carrot and then up in the margins. And then... <laughs> I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. That whole Corinthian thing was a blur. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't, I don't normally, you don't normally get that kind of level of uh, um, humanity, I suppose, in writings in the Bible, um, especially from Paul. Yeah, right, where he's kind of writing in a hurry. But anyway, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out how much I love that. So y'all remember uh, the presidential election of 2016? Or have you all blocked that out of your mind completely at this point? Is that... <laughs> you put up walls around those six months or so? <sighs> Charlie was one year old back then. I remember those days. And I was the... Um, trying desperately to keep my politically purple church from eating themselves alive and living in Berks County, which uh, was very mixed area as well. And along one of the main roads to get to church, I would drive past this house and this house had a flag flying from the porch. It was an American flag with a picture of Donald Trump in the middle of the flag, just his face. And I would drive by that house every day and I would just get angry at those people. And I'd be like, in my head, what a sacrilege of our flag that you would put anyone's face on the flag. How dare you put that, like, suddenly I'm super patriotic and I care so much about how the flag is portrayed. No other point of my life do I care at all about how the flag is portrayed. But in that moment, my goodness gracious, I was getting ready to call my senator to get somebody over there. And I would drive by, past this house, and every time I would, I would just think these awful thoughts about this person and um, what kind of person they are, and I hope I never meet them, and blah, 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 blah. And then, I know, right? Your pastor is admitting this to you. But then at some point, after the election, after the awful messiness, after whatever, there was a particularly windy winter day, and the flag was flying like all the way flapping open, and I realized that it was uh, Elvis Presley and not Donald Trump. <laughs> it is true. And I had spent a good like four months driving past this house every day thinking the worst thoughts about these people. When it turns out they were just Elvis fans. <laughs> And if you want to put a picture of Elvis on your American flag, go right ahead. I think the Founding Fathers would be okay with that. Betsy Ross would have sewn it herself. <sighs> yeah. But it was so easy for me to make these assumptions about this person I've never met. I've never even seen them out on their porch. Because uh, in-groups are so easy, right? 
they are like this shortcut for our brain to be able to decide uh, all the important things about you before I have a chance to meet you or know you or whatever. It is a way to cut out the complexity because we only have so much brain space. Let's be honest. We're already thinking so much. We're already so tired. I don't have the ability to learn every single person's life story and analyze whether or not I can trust them or they're good, whatever. So we come up with these shortcuts, these in-group, out-group shortcuts. And this is no fault of any of you. This is no moral failing of any of you or me. I think I'm justified in my, my uh, flag hatred. Because we are limited physical beings with limited physical brains. Um, in the 1990s, there was this fascinating study done by an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, who came up with what we know as Dunbar's number. This is the number um, of individuals that can fit within a social group of a social primate. And he discovered that by looking at the relative size of the neocortex, which is the upper part of the brain, of a social primate, and then comparing it to the amount, the average amount of a pack, you know, of gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans and baboons and all those, that there was a correlation between the size of the neocortex and the size of the social group. And so he said, I wonder what it would be if I extrapolate that to humans. So it took the average size of the human neocortex and found out that the number should be 148. 148 connections that a human should be able to make. And the way that he described it as the number of people that you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to see them at a bar. So think about the people that if you walked into a bar and you saw them uh, at a table or, or at the bar that you would feel fine just walking right up and going, hey, how's it going? And sitting down next to them. That number should be about 148. So he being an anthropologist and uh, started looking back through time and found that like Stone Age clans of hunter-gatherers typically stayed around 150. Uh, small villages generally tended to be about 150. Military units throughout time and across the world have generally been about 100 to 200 people per unit. And I have been parts of churches that have racked their brains about how to beat that plateau that you get at about 120, 150 people. After that, it starts to feel like you can blend in and you're no longer a part of a tight-knit community. There is something about that number that is a plateau for us. And so in order to get around that plateau, we have invented groups, identity groups, in order to uh, game the system, as it were. It's a way of working around our physical limitations. It's a shortcut to inviting more people into your life, ideally. So you think about nationality, about religion, about philosophy, about politics, all of those groups are ways of tricking your brain into being closer to more people than you're able to otherwise, right? That's a good thing. That feels like a good thing. We always talk about these groups as if it's a bad thing, but this is a way of being more inclusive, of having larger circles of inclusion. It's a way of uh, 
making shortcuts to say that um, I know that you are safe because you wear this marking, because you claim this allegiance, because you say these key words. I know I have something in common with you. I can trust you right away and save my brain power for all of my worries about what I'm doing later today. So it's totally understandable to me that the church in Corinth would be struggling with this from the outset. Uh, they're a fairly big church. Corinth is a really interesting metropolitan trade center filled with diverse people and languages and cultures. It's like New York City. Um, and so you make a church there and it's not just one homogenous group. It's not just like, oh, everyone looks the same and sounds the same, uses the same language, same culture, same God, same whatever. It's different. And so, of course, people are going to default down to their groups. But what's most surprising to me and interesting to me about this part of 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthian church didn't seem to notice their divisions. Or maybe they did and they just didn't care. <laughs> because we learn in chapter 7 that this letter to the church is actually a response to their letter to Paul. Paul had planted the church and then went off on his merry way, and they had questions about doctrine, uh, you know, church questions. Who, uh, tell us about um, marital ethics. Um, tell us about uh, food sacrifice to idols. Like, what can we do? What can't we do if we're following Jesus? These are the questions they had, and he gets there in chapter 7. But he didn't learn about the divisions in the church from that letter. He learned about the divisions in the church from Chloe's people. Remember that, what he, what he said? That uh, Chloe's people passed along to me that there's divisions among you, that you're fighting about you're Paul's people, you're Paulus's people, you're Cephas's people, you're Jesus's people, you're whatever's people, you're following this, you're following that. It was Chloe's people that pointed that out to him. Now, we don't know anything about Chloe. She never shows up again in the Bible. She um, very rarely shows up anywhere else in the uh, first century. She's likely um, a successful businesswoman, a, tr uh, a trader, a merchant. She likely has uh, servants or employees that she is sending on business to Paul. And then they're in Ephesus where Paul is. Maybe they're the ones that brought the letter. Or maybe they're just doing their business. We don't know. But I like this Chloe. Because I think Chloe gets it. Chloe sees her beloved church has turmoil. It's got issues. It's ugly. It's messy. And the leaders, likely the men leaders, think that this is a problem of doctrine. People aren't believing the right thing. They need to be educated. They need to have special classes on how to act and what to believe and what to do. And Chloe knows that at the heart of the heart of the heart of the thing is connection, is relationship, is mutuality. She gets it. Doctrinal disagreements, eh, they're just whatever. They come secondary. And they come secondary to Paul. He doesn't even get to them until seven chapters in. Because without good, personal, loving, um, mutualistic connections, everything falls apart. 
Group loyalty, while it can be a good thing, also shuts down our ability to think clearly and objectively. And before you start thinking that this is a problem that only those other people deal with, <laughs> this is, like I said, a shortcut of the brain. We all are guilty of this. There's a fabulous study out of Stanford in which they took a group of, uh, they took groups of students, ones who were avowed conservative, those who were avowed liberal, and they presented them with two, uh, two welfare packages, the hypothetical welfare packages. One was really, really generous, one was really, really stingy. And as you'd expect, the liberals loved the generous one, the conservatives loved the stingy one, but then, with a second group of people, they gave them the same packages, but told them that, like, I think it was the, uh, the really, the generous one was proposed by Ted Cruz. And then they told them that that really stingy one was proposed by Bernie Sanders. And they found that the people, the, the self-avowed liberals voted against their own policy when they believed that it came from Ted Cruz. Their sense of in-group and trusting the people who are a part of our group superseded their very uh, convictions. So that's why Paul brings it back to Jesus, the head of the church. Because Paul wants to challenge them, and I would say us, to expand their group identity. That we today, we are not primarily progressive or conservative or Protestant or Catholic or whatever Christians you may label ourselves. We are primarily Jesus' people first. And I think those labels that we give ourselves can be really helpful for finding, uh, finding your people. For finding people that you can connect with on a soul level that you can do the work with together. I think that's so important. But the moment that those labels and groups start excluding people instead of making wider and wider circles of inclusion, I think that's when we can safely throw them in the recycling bin. Or maybe better, throw them in the compost bin, let them turn into something uh, more useful as they decompose. I think we in the Protestant church, we're so susceptible to this. I mean, how many tens of thousands of denominations are there within the Protestant church? Because we just keep splitting every time we disagree with things. And we, as a brand new baby church plant, it was so easy for us to look around and say, well, we're not like those churches. We're not like those churches, those people with all their problems. We have no problems because we're doing this from scratch and we're the right ones. <sighs> Maybe. I don't know. It might be true. Right. Give us time. We'll find our own ways to screw things up. So I wonder if we can take just a moment here and do a little experiment in identification and think not about other people's identifications, but our own. And I wonder if you might share with us a group that you identify with and then one way that you don't actually fit into that group. So for example... I am a liberal pacifist gun owner. There are dozens of us. I own guns, but I would never use them on another person. How do you, how do you not fit in the groups that you're a part of? 
Ooh. An artist who doesn't like galleries. Okay, let all your paintings be in private. Facebook group of liberal gun owners because we have no solidarity with local gun clubs. One day I'll tell you the story about how I attended a Good Friday protest at a, uh, at a gun shop in North Philly and tried to broker peace between the counter protesters coming from Bucks County, who members of the NRA, and the anarchist uh, friends of mine in North Philly and nobody would listen to me and both sides ended up hating me for it and that'll be a fun story someday I'm sure I'll tell and Lisa you'd appreciate that bridges get walked on both ways yes they do <clears throat> so I think I, I think what I'm hearing is that uh, all of you feel like you belong to some kind of group but none of you feel like you belong to that group or that you fit that group fully. And maybe you think that you're the exception to that, that everyone else fits that group much better than you do, and you're the one, you're the oddball. But it turns out that everyone's the oddball in the group, um, and nobody fits the stereotype of the group fully. No matter how much you think that person is a stereotype, in their heart of hearts, they do not. So my prayer for you, friends, as we go out into this uh, messy, complicated world, um, this very divisive time. I w would pray that we would be a people whose identities draw wider and wider circles of inclusion. May we offer to others the complexity that we allow ourselves, and may we be united in Christ, and may that be simply enough for us.